Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Uh, tonight's episode uh, we're going to deal with, I get into a lot, uh, is floor repair pointers. Uh, wood floors are really so common and reliable in old houses, such as the uh, Shivers House in Woodstown. We tend to forget that even these faithful pieces of carpentry even get injured or worn in spots uh, and need a saw, hammer, nails to get them into the right again. I mean, you know, like the Shivers house, just imagine the amount of people that have walked through the front door. Um, you know, we had Casper Wister, who developed the first glass manufacturer in the United States, has been through that front door, the Dutch door at the Shivers house, five, ten times. It's in, the, it's in Samuel Shivers' diary. Benjamin Franklin has been there on two occasions, talking with Casper Wister, having a colloquy in front of the fireplace. And uh, William Franklin has been there five times talking about land deals. So, uh, but you look at the front door, you see where at times the, the, the door scrapes the floor and just imagine the abrasive particles, the silicates and, and the, the various things on the, the, uh, the shoes worn by individuals. And, and you see some boards that have been replaced that weren't quite as durable, uh, the type of pines, as some, of the, some of the other boards. So... Uh, water, water damage, and uh, and the like. So, so what we're going to talk about a little bit of a collection of tips, techniques, and give you a little bit of advice that's worth remembering when fixing problems in your old old house, your old home, uh, with wide board floors or narrow strip tongue and groove floors. So, we're going to give you a few tips. So let's get started. Tip number one. When you're patching or adding to the existing floor, matching the existing flooring is quite critical. Take care to duplicate the dimensions of the existing boards, remembering that the width and fit of the tongue and groove joints are most important. Salvage is one sort or another is a great option here. If you can find matching boards at a salvage yard or by keeping your eye out for a likely dumpster dive, it, it's a good thing, but don't overlook the possibility of, quote, swapping out some flooring within your home. A closet on the second floor or third floor, for example, may have identical flooring to what you need for repair of the first floor. It can be a donor area that no one will accept will ever see but you. And, and I have a lot of clients has, who have had me um, swap out the entire attic for the first floor. You won't find the same width of boards, but you're going to find uh, uh, wonderfully patinated boards, um, oxidized uh, to fit the bill quite well. So that's always an option out there. So that's uh, tip number one. Uh, Tip number two, starting with the same species of wood as the surrounding floor will do the most to match its appearance. For example, take particular care to note whether it is red oak or white oak, or whether you have a maple floor that's one made of, up of many different kinds of pines. Then look for flooring with the same cut. Flat cut, which is flat grain boards, have annual growth rings that usually run parallel to the face of the board in a characteristic flame pattern. You will usually see this cut in softwoods like pine and in wide board floors. A rift cut boards, also called quarter sawn, or vertical, vertical grain. And remember, you, you see a lot more grain when you have a quarter sawn board. And these have annual rings 
that are vertical to the face of the board and are much more uniform in grain. But the, the, the grain is much more, not just uniform, it's quite spectacular at best, particularly in oak, and some call it, um, which is a misnomer, tiger oak, but it's not. It's, it's quarter sawn oak. This cut is much more sophisticated than flat grain, as well as more durable, and is commonly seen in strip floors and pri in primary rooms. So here we have a quarter sawn boards that are 30 to 50% more durable than flat sawn. So it's just the, how the cell walls tend to wear with the abrasiveness of the, uh, you know, the, the usage of that floor in that particular area. So in essence, careful selection will help you go even further in matching appearance, color, variation, and tightness of grain, um, which I mean the number of annual rings per inch play a great part here. Uh, also look to duplicate special features in the grain, such as the flash of quarter sawn oak, which we just talked about, or the little highlights of, say, bird's eye maple. I mean, sometimes you, you have a maple floor and you have a few pieces that are of uh, the beautiful bird's eye or tiger pattern. So uh, let's, let's shift over to tip number three. Uh, unless there are special conditions, tongue and groove floors, usually stripped hardwoods, should be laid and nailed up as tight as possible when they are installed. And this would have to do with boards that are, you know, quite narrow. So you're assuming it's dry and you want to keep them tight. So when they even shrink further, then there's not going to be too many gaps. So uh, when working with good materials in the open field of a floor, this is usually not difficult. However, when crooked floorboards turn up or spaces cramp, say when starting a floor, it becomes much harder to drive the boards up tight and nail them at the same time. Clamping the boards together is the solution to this dilemma. It really is. And one way is with a clever device cooked up years ago by four, uh, uh, different folks uh, that I've met in, in my teaching. And uh, it's, it's kind of a wedge. So what you want to do is form a wedge uh, with two pieces of wood and a hinge. So you can have these wedges in, in different lengths. And when you just say you put the, the wedge, uh, the hinge um, against the wall and it's not quite touching the floor, simply step on the hinge, these two pieces of wood, and it forces them down. It forces those two pieces of boards in the same horizontal plane and actually puts pressure against um, the floorboards you're trying to get tight together. So that's one way. So dimensions are all to taste. There is no type of special hinge. So in use, uh, you can dig, dig up a can opener in, in the subfloor at a position that leaves the lever somewhat short of being completely flat. So the hinge in this case is acting as a lever or lever to put uh, outward pressure against a, uh, a known entity and to push the boards tighter together. So uh, number four, whether freshly milled or recycled, make sure the new flooring has the same moisture content as the existing floor before you install it. If the new wood is too wet, it could shrink, cup, or leave checks in between boards when it dries. If the new wood is too dry, it could swell in width during the next wet season. Typically, you know, we know this is being summer, and buckle widening cracks between boards of the adjacent original flooring. Cracks in new flooring will close, but because the new wood is tied into the old wood and expanding at a greater rate, 
cracks will open up in the old flooring. So, I mean, what happens to, to wood over 100, 150 years, depending on the species and the, uh, you know, the age and, and where the tree was grown, wood tends to become petrified. It slows down in this expansion and contraction over the years. So here you are trying to tie in uh, a patch with, with some new wood, and that wood is going to be moving constantly back and forth, and you're putting it next to wood that is basically petrified. So then that creates all kind of vector problems. Uh, so to head off these problems, match the moisture content of the repair stop to that of the existing floor before installation. Measuring the wood with a moisture meter is one way. The most common method, however, is to allow the repair stock to adjust to the ambient moisture level of the room. To do this, stack and sticker the flooring. That is, separate it by layers of sticks and leave it in the room where it will be installed for at least two weeks. Don't make the mistake of storing the repair stock in a garage where it will pick up more, moist, more moisture. So if you can wait four weeks, it'll be much better. So uh, let the moisture regulate to the other flooring or the existing flooring in the room. Uh, let's move on to number five. So uh, squeaks. Um, you know, squeaks, you, you hate to go into houses where, even new houses where, where cheap carpentry has been done, cheap construction and housing developments where they, they threw mass carpeting down or this, this uh, fake flooring over plywood and, and they didn't tighten it down. And this kind of secret with plywood and screwing it or nailing it in the last 30, 40 years is to use construction cement. So squeaks and queaks and, and even in, in bathtubs. So you're walking in bathtubs of 20 to 30 old houses and, you know, improperly installed. They should have been installed in a, in a very slight bed of cement. Uh, some kind of mortar so they wouldn't create noise. But uh, So, uh, squeaks are sometimes caused by one or two subfloor boards that work against a joist because they are loose. When there is access from underneath, driving a shim dipped in glue between the joist and the subfloor is often a great quick fix, even for the happy homeowner. Stronger measures require anchoring the subfloor with a cleat. To do this, attach a block, roughly, say, two by two, to the joist. And this would, you know, preferably be in, in the, the basement if it's a first floor situation. Use wood screws and make sure the block is flush with the top of the joist. Then if someone upstairs, stand on the problem area while you screw in the cleat to the subfloor from underneath. Great easy fix. Number six, if you have access to the underside of a squeaky floor from, say, a basement, <clears throat> first locate the problem area by watching the subfloor while someone work, walks on top. Since the noise is often the result of a low or loose subfloor board working against the finished floor, next try driving a short screw or two through the subfloor to grab the finished flooring to prevent the two from moving against each other. So repeat until the squeak is gone. Another easy quick tip for the homeowner. Number seven, if you're only able to work from the top of a floor, the finished side of a floor, it is sometimes possible to halt a squeak by toenailing the floor to a joist. Starting at the heart of the squeak, drive a pair of 10-penny finishing nails toward each other in a V so that they grab the joist solidly. Opposing nails resist pullout. This is important. Repeat every half foot or so down the joist in both directions until the squeak is cured. Uh, 
then set the nails and fill the holes. Now, the great thing is you can even do this right through the carpeting. So if you have wall-to-wall carpeting and you have squeaky floors, um, and then just set the nail, you know, through the through one of the weaves in the carpeting, it works very, very well. So if the squeak is minor or seasonal, say, just appearing in winter when the environment is drier, try lubricating the boards by just dusting some talc in the joints. Repeat until the squeak improves. Tip number eight. When single or multiple floor strips have sunken slightly due to a defect in the subfloor or joist, they can be pried up again by using a wood screw. Turn the screw in as near as possible to the depressed area and just enough to grab well. Then place a wood block on a sound part of the floor as a fulcrum. Use a pry bar to lift the boards back. Once the flooring is level, support it in place by driving one or more eight-penny finishing nails at an angle into the subfloor under the screw. Another approach is to inject epoxy consolidant or silicone sealant under the flooring if there is access above the floor where the fault is laid. So, um, just a few more things. Let's go into a few more things here. Um, so let's talk about some, we'll call it floorboard surgery. How's that? So like when it comes to working invisibly in floor repairs, special tools make the job slick, but not quick. It takes time to do careful work that does not damage the wood or finish on the floor. So just be very, very aware of this. Be very mindful of this. Plus, it's worth the effort in the beginning because there is little or no time to spend repairing or refinishing when putting the floor back together. So don't, don't create more work for yourself than you already have. So with this approach, the overall time and cost is much less than working with sawzalls and crowbars to rip the flooring up, then having to find or make replacement boards and finishing them to match. So let's, uh, we're going to go through maybe 10 really quick steps here. So let, let's talk about these. So suppose you have an electrical wiring project that requires opening up the floor for access to the space beneath and then putting it back together without any damage showing, which happens all the time. In this narrow strip, maple tongue and groove floor, um, take up a single three inch wide board. Uh, number two. The boards have tongue and groove joints along the edges. They are blind nailed on a diagonal through the first tongue. What I do is I locate each nail along the joint with a magnetic nail finder, then mark its location with a pencil. Tip number three. Next, I use a cordless trim saw to cut down into the joint and through the tongue. The saw has a low RPM that is good for making a plunge cut, always dangerous because the teeth can grab and kick the saw back. So be very careful this when lowering a saw into wood in that manner at a circular saw. I also screw a stop to the floor, placing the screws on the board joints so any damage is less apparent than in the middle. So number four, when replacing this floorboard, um, the carbide teeth um, generally on some of these saw blades are only one millimeter wide, some of the really cheap ones. So they easily slip into the joint or, or cut the nail. To make a plunge cut, I set the back edge of the saw sole against the stop 
hold the blade guard open and slowly lower the spinning circular saw blade into the cut. As I move ahead, I slow down a bit as the blade cuts through the nail, then continue with the cut. Next, once the board is fully loose, I carefully pry it up with a nice stiff putty knife, catching and holding each little lift with the sharpest chisel. It takes quite a, few, quite a while to loosen and lift the board, but careful work pays off with no gouging or splintering at the edges of the boards. Number six, once the floorboard is exposed, it will easily see the nails holding the boards in place. Number seven, I use another specialized saw to cut out a section of the subfloorboard. Um, it's a, one of these European detail sanders fitted with a wood cutting blade. So uh, we have uh, also, uh, this is an older saw that I use, but I also have the newer multi-tool. Uh, I have a couple of Milwaukee's uh, that actually can do the same thing. And uh, this works very well. So, and number eight, um, this detail sander that I'm using with the blade can be fitted with a wide range of blades. Uh, the one that I chose has a long reach and is offset for flush cuts, both necessary features for this type of work. Number nine, next I pull out the nails holding the rough boards in place with just an old-fashioned slide claw hammer and pull the nails out. Number 10, I drive the beak-like jaws down into the wood next to the nail head and pry back the long handle on the hammer. The action of the lever to one side forces the jaws to grip the nail head and the nail comes out right away. Then the section of subfloor board is easily lifts out, ready for replacement and renailing. Greg Perry signing out. Um, hope everyone uh, got a few tips about uh, floorboard surgery. So the historic preservationist signing out, Greg Perry.